What is up, y'all? My name is Kristen. My name is Sarah. And welcome or welcome back to the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast. It is just that time of the year. Medical mishaps are running rampant in both of the Red Rum households, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I have COVID. Yeah. Sarah's (laughs) not going to be talking much this episode. Thank God it is my time to do a tale, but I will be completing, or not completing, but I'll be talking about the case I had briefly mentioned in the last case that I did. So if you have not checked that one out, go ahead and do so. It is talking about the unsolved case of Maggie Long, and today I will be getting into a true crime case that actually involved her older sister, Lena Long, and this case was not something that I had ever heard about, so be prepared. It involves children, and it is very much a school shooting type of situation, so if those are cases that you are not comfortable with, adieu see you on the next one. But for today, I will be talking about the Platte Canyon High School hostage crisis. Ooh. On the morning of September 27, 2006, surveillance cameras at the Platte Canyon High School would pick up something rather odd on their tapes. At 8.42 a.m., a battered yellow Jeep with an older-looking gentleman with gray hair driving it would park into the school's parking lot. This Jeep had actually been caught on cameras the day before entering the parking lot, kind of loitering for about an hour and then leaving around noon, but today the Jeep would do something entirely different. The vehicle would leave and come back a number of times that morning before finally entering into the school's parking lot a final time at 9.44 a.m., Here, he would be seen in the parking lot. It was said that at one point, he would talk to some male students and begin to ask him about a list of female students. He was said to begin talking to just random high school students. They said at 1045 a.m., one of the students could see him still sitting in the yellow Jeep and drinking what appeared to be liquor in his Jeep. It would be at 10.53 a.m. that this older gentleman, who would later be identified as 53-year-old Dwayne Roger Morrison, would hop out of his vehicle and enter Platte Canyon High School carrying a .40 Smith & Wesson caliber Glock pistol, as well as a Smith & Wesson .357 caliber revolver in his backpack. It would be upon entering the high school that Dwayne Morrison would begin to randomly walk around. There would be a 16-year-old student named Katrina Keller walking along the halls, and she would see what she would describe as a man wearing a hooded sweatshirt appearing really angry, and she could obviously tell that it was an older man, but unfortunately, she wouldn't tell anyone of what she saw, and she wouldn't be the only one. I think there was another guy or another male student that had seen him kind of walking around really suspiciously, and they didn't really know what to do in that situation, so they just didn't really do anything at all. Unreported, he would make his way up to the second floor in room 206. Now, room 206 is where Sandra Smith taught her honors English class. 
it would be here that the man would walk in and slam his backpack onto the desk and Sandra Smith, shocked to see this stranger randomly entering her room, would ask, what are you doing? What's going on? This is when Morrison would pull out one of the handguns that was in his backpack and raise it up to him. One of the students that was in the classroom, Chelsea Wilson, would state that all of the hairs on my body stood up. I guess I was somewhat praying that this was just a drill. But instead of a drill, Dwayne Morrison would demand everyone to line up against the chalkboard. From here, he would one by one ask male students, the instructor, and some of the female students to leave the room. Now, Sandra Smith, being responsible for all of these students, would plead with Morrison, stating that she couldn't leave any of her students behind. But Morrison would then threaten Sandra, stating that if she were to stay here, he would kill her and all of her students if he didn't comply with her demands. Sandra, seeing no other option, was forced to leave the rest of the students behind, and these would end up being seven female students that were left lined up against the chalkboard. It was described in one article that these were mainly blonde, petite girls, so he picked girls that were either blonde or that looked small enough that they wouldn't be able to fight back. Mm. He had all of their faces lined up against the board before Morrison would turn off the lights and start to barricade themselves in the room. There is a rumor, if you do look into the incident of um, an attempt that at one point a male student actually tried to fight back with Morrison when he was attempting to leave the other students out. And when this happened, Morrison shot a single fire off randomly and it didn't hit anyone. But this was actually proved later to be a story that was made up by one of the students that wasn't in the room. Um, Mm. It was more so that he just felt such an overwhelming guilt. It was described, and I'm not going to say his name, but he felt such a guilt because one of his friends was in that classroom who ended up being one of the seven hostages. And he just felt that he could have done something had he known. And so over the stress of the interviews and whatnot, it was said that he made this story up. And so in a few of the articles you will see, it's said that like that is a reputable thing that happened, but it isn't what happened. At 11.41 a.m., a 911 call from the Platte Canyon administration would come in stating that a male subject armed with a handgun entered room 206 that was located within the English pod of the school and that there were possible hostages taken. A code white alert would sound over the intercom, and this would instruct students and teachers to remain in their classrooms as deputies rushed onto the scene. Park County Sheriff Fred Wegner, who, if we remember, is the sheriff that (laughs) was from the last episode, uh, his son was actually a student there at the time. So him and other deputies would arrive within minutes of the call being made. You'll see, I... I'm not going to shit talk. He does do a very good job with this. Um, You can kind of maybe see why he was sheriff at this point in time. It's just really upsetting to see the downfall of his career towards the end. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out last episode or the episode before that. I don't know what what the order is in. Mm. So all the deputies would arrive within minutes. As soon as Sandra Smith was kicked out of the classroom, she would rush to the uh, nearest classroom or somewhere, get 911 on the phone and like less than three minutes. There were cop cars there. Um, They were starting to 
get a visual into the classroom. They were able to find a narrow window that was adjacent to the door. So they were actually able to get a look inside and kind of get a visual of what was going on. From here, they would see Morrison holding a gun to the head of one of the hostages. And it was here that they would actually try to make an attempt to communicate with him. They would order him, you know, drop the gun, release these hostages right now. Morrison refused to comply, it was said in one of the articles, and it was here that he would state that he had three pounds of C4, and this would detonate if anyone dared to intervene, and he had the C4 oh. in his backpack. Oh, fuck. He would be overheard telling officials, imagine what that would do to the school if this were to go off. Negotiations would immediately try to be held with Morrison in an attempt to get him to release all of his hostages. But Morrison was really resistant to not give them any response. He was not talking to them whatsoever. While investigators were trying to get some sort of word out of him, the other officers were making further perimeters around the school and trying to start to evacuate all of the surrounding students because now not only is there a hostage situation, there is a possible bomb threat going on. The high school would actually use what they had called the Platte Canyon High School Evacuation and Safety Plan, which at the time consisted of officials sliding their photo identification under the door. This would signal instructors instructors that it was safe for them to then unlock the door and then they would be able to be evacuated from there. By 12.10 p.m., a total of 800 students from both Platte Canyon High School and the neighboring Fitzsimmons School would be evacuated, aside from those seven hostages in room 206. In between the hours of 12 to 3, because that's about how long it took for them to evacuate, parents were given little to no information over what was going on, like what the hostage situation was or the bomb threat, really nothing. They were simply told at 3 p.m. to go to Deer Creek Elementary School and they would be met with their children. So at 3 p.m. when the buses pulled up to Deer Creek Elementary to these parents that were anxiously awaiting their children, it would said that you could hear parents waving joyfully and shouting, I love you to their children as that you could see them from their bus windows. Mm. During one of the attempts to try and converse with Morrison, the officers would ask the welfare of the hostages and if he was willing to let one of them go. And he would actually respond by releasing one of the girls at 12.15 p.m. She would be quickly escorted from the facility as investigators began to ask her questions regarding what she was able to see while she was in that room. She would state that he became irate at first when students from other classrooms, unaware of what was going on, would actually try to enter room 206 and said that at this point, a round was possibly discharged in order to scare students off. And there were students, I read in one article, that were being evacuated, that were, when they were leaving room 206, at one point they potentially heard a shot going off. So that kind of coincides with what students were hearing when they were leaving. She would further tell the officers that Morrison would take them from the chalkboard back to the room into the further interior of the classroom before sexually assaulting each of them. She stated mm. that she heard several of the girls sobbing and pleading and pleading with Morrison and that when it was her turn to go with him, he would place a handgun against her neck and state that he would kill her if he tried to resist her. 
She would also tell officials that when she was leaving the classroom, that Morrison had another girl under his immediate control and that her pants were unbuttoned and unzipped and that she was sobbing. Lena Long, who you may remember from the last case, Maggie Long's sister, was just a 15-year-old sophomore at the time that this was going on, and she was one of the seven that was actually forced to stay in room 206. Her and her mother both agreed at the time because there were laws in place that protect the identity of these seven hostages. So Lena came out after talking to her mother and said, I'm willing to come forth as one of these seven hostages. She would tell investigators that she knew other hostages were being sexually assaulted because she could hear the rustling of the clothes and the elastic being snapped and the zippers being opened and closed. Between the times of 12.35 to 1.45 p.m., four out of the six remaining hostages would be released. They would be released one at a time sporadically throughout that time frame. Each of the girls would immediately be questioned as to what happened in there, as well as confirming the presence of the large backpack that Morrison claimed to have had with him. They would describe how he continuously menaced them with a semi-automatic handgun and would periodically scream at them, stating that he would blow up the school and that they should pull out their cell phones and contact their loved ones and family. It would be during this time that 16-year-old junior Emily Keyes would send a text on the phone that her family had just gotten her and her twin for their 16th birthday. Mm. And a text that was sent at 1.52 p.m., she would write, I love you guys, in response to her father, John Michael Key's text asking, are you okay? After he heard that the incident was occurring at their high school, John Michael would immediately see the text and respond, where are you? But unfortunately, he would receive nothing back from his daughter. The four that were released would confirm to investigators that they were sexually assaulted at the hands of Morrison and that when they had last left, Morrison retreated to the far end of the wall of room 206 and had six to nine rows of tables in between them and the door. From here, he would position the two remaining girls right in front of him, using them as a barricade. Negotiation tactics to get the remaining two out would be begin to intensify. This is really the crescendo hitting the peak of this crisis. And they begin to realize that Morrison is basically using these hostages to communicate with them. He will not directly speak with them. I know at one point they were able to maybe like get a phone call through. And um, it was like the girls that were saying what the officers were responding. Morrison would say it. And then the girls, it was like a big telephone game between all of them. Morrison refused to speak to officials. The JSCO SWAT team would begin to use pole mirrors in order to try and see what was going on in room 206, but this would only agitate Morrison. It fucking pissed him off, and the hostages began to panic in response to this. He immediately began to say, you need to remove this, like someone's going to get hurt if y'all don't comply with what I'm saying. By 3.32 p.m., negotiations began to further stall, and Morrison would give the final warning that at 4 p.m., the crisis would be over. Law enforcement immediately took this as that explosive device that Morrison is claiming to have is going to be set off at 4 p.m. Either that or he's going to engage in some kind of violent end. 
It's ominous. You know what he said? It like sounds ominous. Yes. Wagner, upon hearing this, would state, my decision was either to wait and have the possibility of having two dead hostages or act and try to save them when I feared what he would do to them because I'd want whoever was in my position to do the same thing. And this is to save lives. I just wish we would keep the energy for all those years. Yeah. That's all I'll say. At 3.35 p.m., an explosive breach would be made in the south wall of the room of 206, and this would be done by SWAT's hands. This was... They used an explosive breach. It was said to create some type of diversion. There is, like, this really long, really descriptive report that I read and that I got a lot of my information from. But they start to get into chemistry and bombs, and that's kind of where, no matter how much many times I reread that, I'm just not going to understand it. So they used, from my knowledge, not that much, used some type of bomb as a diversion and then um, was a, like, like banged into the room and when they did that they also um had two additional inversions so they threw a flashbang and they also had a physical porting out of the window and this was said to have like a water impulse charge like that's where i'm like i don't know if you are really interested in all of the tactics that they used definitely read that report it was very interesting but Long story short, a lot is going on in this room when SWAT enters. They're basically trying to get Morrison disoriented and create kind of a barrier so he's not shooting directly at them as soon as they enter. When SWAT enters the room, they advance towards Morrison and see that he is seated directly behind his two hostages and that he has 16-year-old Emily Key's head in his left arm and he's pressing the muzzle of his handgun to the right side of her head with the other hand. The other hostage not being held by Morrison was able to run and be grabbed by SWAT unharmed and was able to be brought to safety and as SWAT continued to make their way to Morrison, unfortunately, as Emily tried to do the same, Morrison would pull the trigger and she would be shot in the head. Ugh. At this point, realizing probably what is about to happen to him, Morrison would turn the gun on himself as SWAT officers opened fire. Dwayne Roger Morrison would be pronounced dead on the scene at 3.57 p.m., three minutes before he was going to cut communications off with police. Emily Keyes would be rushed by helicopter to St. Anthony's Central Hospital in Denver, but unfortunately, she would be pronounced dead at 4.32 p.m. When officers were finally able to examine the room and find the backpack that Morrison had been talking about, it was said to contain duct tape, handcuffs, knives, a stun gun, rope, scissors, massage oil, sex toys, rounds of ammunition, but no C4. Fuck. I did read in one report that they even found like plaque, fake plastic bags around the school that resembled explosives. So I don't know if that was Morrison's doing or if that was him trying to, like, make what seemed like a fake plastic explosive to make his claim more credible. But it's disgusting what he had in that backpack. But thank God there were no 
there wasn't an easy four and that was a bluff but uh just if you don't get a chill reading the contents in that Mm. investigators would find three additional firearms a colt ar-45 rifle that was found a mile north of the school in a clearing this was a clearing that Dwayne was actually said Dwayne morrison was actually said to be like hanging around beforehand they would also find a Browning A bolt .270 bolt action rifle located north of campus near US Route 285 and a Smith and Wesson Model 29.45 Magnum revolver that was located south of the school near a hiking trail. And I believe he also had like a ton of weapons in his car. It's like I I'm just going to get to it now. His, I'll get a little bit into it later, but for now, like, a lot of these weapons were shown to be purchased, like, by family members on his behalf, though it was really weird that he did that because he was able to buy a gun on his own anyways, which I will get into. It's really fucking messed up that he was even allowed to purchase a gun on his own, so maybe he was scared thinking that he would get flagged, and so Hmm. that's why he got his family to do it, but I don't really know because legally he could have purchased one on his own. But another interesting thing is, like, a few years before this, or maybe a year before this incident happened, he reported half of those guns stolen and had gotten $10,000 on an insurance claim from it. So... I didn't even know that was... Not to give anyone any ideas, but... (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? An autopsy report would later reveal that Morrison had died from had died with four bullet wounds in his body. Three were said to be non-fatal shots that were given by the police. There was a graze wound to his right hand, two shots to the right shoulder, and there was a shot that was in his head by police, but they say that the first shot to his head using uh, Morrison's own bullet was the fatal shot, and then police fired afterwards. Morrison, not, no, I'm not going to get that much into him. He was unemployed at the time and had no known connection to Platte Canyon High School or any of the hostages that were in room 206. Uh, he had a Denver address at the time of this attack, and but apparently he had been living in like a motel. But really what was said was that he was living in his Jeep. That was the vibe that everyone else was getting. Uh, um, Is the high school in Denver? Hmm? Is the high school in Denver? No, the high school's in Bailey, Colorado. Sorry if I didn't... Let me double check that, actually. But it should be in Bailey, Colorado. Yeah, it's in Bailey, Colorado. Damn, the family stayed after that. That's insane. I would have left. (laughs) Homeschool. Yeah. At least. (laughs) Um... One of the maintenance supervisors that had actually worked at the Denver apartment complex that Morrison had lived in before he went homeless, his name was Jesse Williams, and he recalled that female residents complained often about the lewd or suggestive comments that Morrison would often make to them. Williams also said that he was always talking about girls If there was a girl who was younger out at the pool, he was outside. And I mean every time. Ugh. Fucking sick. The only connection that they were able to find to Morrison and the school was that he was known to spend a lot of time in Park County, which is the 
county within Bailey, Colorado, because he apparently loved to hike and camp. So that's what he would spend his time doing. But that particular place where he would go hiking and camping was within real close proximity to the high school. I don't know how close, but they said it was fairly close. Probably, you know, along those trails where those other guns were found. Yeah. And he he had been in this area for a while. Uh, a, local, a local hardware store said that about six weeks before the shooting, they saw Morrison's Jeep in their store parking lot. So he had been stalking the area for quite some time. And the reason why I think it's so fucking insane that this guy was able to have a gun was that he was known to have really violent tendencies. About a month before the shooting on August 15th of 2006, he pled guilty to harassment after he left a voicemail at a local Harley-Davidson dealership. Now, this happened in 2002, so that was four years ago. But in this voicemail, he straight up told them that he was going to visit their headquarters with a rifle and shoot the place up and, like, kill people that were there. I believe, like, one woman was the one that got the voicemail. And he's like, I'm going to fucking go in there and kill you. And the reason why he left this voicemail is because he received a promotional catalog in his mail. And he was upset about it. (sighs) Damn capitalism. I don't, I don't want ads in my mail. Oh, my God. Imagine how you feel when we black mirror that shit and you're not even going to be able to, like, look away. Right? Oh, my God. People are going to riot. So, yeah, I was really shocked that he was able to legally go in and purchase a gun after making threats like that. But, you know, America, this is America. We don't... <laughs> Fuck. Oh my God. So yeah, he got a a lot of them were on behalf of his family members, though, you know. (sighs) A few days after the shooting, there would be a note that was received by one of his family members, and this would be like a 14 page suicide note. Uh, It wasn't Mm. said to be a suicide note, though it heavily alluded to the fact that he wanted to commit suicide. In this 14-page note, he claimed that he had been mentally and physically abused by his father, and there was also some alluding to maybe some sexual abuse in his life, as well as to the fact that he had been having suicidal thoughts since he was 21. Uh, His father, Bob Morrison, just overall described him as just different and a loner. Hmm. The autopsies would also confirm that Emily Keyes would die of a single gunshot wound to the right side of her head that was done by Dwayne Roger Morrison. The school would give both the high school and elementary school the rest of the week off, and they would set up a counseling center at the local church that would open at 7 a.m. for students if they wanted to attend. The memorial service for Emily Keyes would be held on September 30th, and the governor of Colorado, Bill Owens would later declare this day Emily Keys Day in remembrance of her. Mm. Luis Gonzalez, a spokesperson for the family, would state, In memory of Emily, we would like everyone to go out and do random acts of kindness, random acts of love to your friends or your neighbors or your fellow students, because there is no way to make sense of this. It's what Emily would have wanted. She was described as a sweet and affectionate young girl who played volleyball and loved talking to her friends. 
A Columbine to Canyon ride would take place shortly after, in which 5,000 motorcyclists would ride two side-by-side along each other from Columbine to Platte Canyon in memory of the victims that lost their lives to both Columbine and the Platte Canyon hostage crisis because Columbine happened in 1999, so the community is still very much fresh to this kind of horrible, horrible tragedies. The procession of motorcycles was so long that by the time the final motorcyclist left Columbine High School, the first motorcyclist would be arriving at Platte Canyon High School. Shit. Platte Canyon High School would open back up a week later on October 5th, and memorials would be put all along the highways that led to the high school that would state things like, be strong and random acts of kindness. A number of students gathered in front of the school before the day started in order to pray. And at the end of the day, as students made their way back home, they would each be handed a teddy bear. Superintendent Dr. James Walpole will state that of the 460 high school students that they had, only 10 were absent. The security of the school was of course, put into major question after this event. A fact that will really piss you off. I know it pissed me off. Colorado's initial efforts once Columbine, once the Columbine High School disaster first happened was to increase security throughout all schools in Colorado. But this would just stop mere years after Columbine happened. Instead, federal and state legislators decided that high test scores were more important than the safety of the children that they were trying to teach and cut major funding towards that efforts. Del Elliott from the University of Colorado would state, The vast majority of school districts are so absorbed with KSAP and other academic requirements that they aren't spending a lot of time and resources on this issue. After the Platte Canyon hostage crisis, the high school would increase security by leaving only one door at the school entrance unlocked. Wagner's proposed solution to have a guard set up there would be dismissed later by him stating that the suggestion would be outside of their budget. In response to the tragic loss of their daughter, John Michael and Ellen Keyes set up a nonprofit foundation in 2006 called I Love You Guys, named after the Aww. last set text that their daughter sent them. <laughs> this foundation is led by survivors, family members, first responders, and community members who are interested in safety, preparedness, and reunification within the schools. They offer these training programs to schools at no cost, and since it has been founded, it has been implemented in over 30,000 schools and organizations all over the United States. In an interview that involved Emily's father, John Michael, her mother, Ellen, and her twin brother, Casey, they would state, when we remember September 27th, it's the text message Emily sent, I love you guys. It is our hope that that's the message you remember as well. And that is the fucking case that I'm not trying to cry over right now. The yeah, same. Very horrific and terrible and just, oh my gosh, Pot Canyon High School hostage crisis. Um, no, yeah, that's really sad. Um, very, you know, I just, I really hope that no one ever has to go through that 
situation. Yeah. Like being in a hostage situation, but then also being uh, sexually abused. It's just a whole nother level of of fucked up. Because even though the other six were able to get out alive, it's still, that's, none of them are ever going to be the same. It's... Right. And then you have a family that is never going to be the same because they're never going to have their daughter come home again. It's... There's no happy ending to that. It's really just a hard case all around. And the fact that it happens in an environment where you go to learn, like, I... um, that's I it's hard he literally could have gone anywhere and he the fact that he picked a high school it's that guy is the dusty crustiest scum of the earth it's disgusting and then oh and Jesse Williams was like well guys will be guys but he just seemed to be a little too I'm like no we need to stop saying that guys will not be guys like if you see people acting like this they are sick and something needs to be done some calling out some beating I don't know something being a pedophile isn't just a like a guy characteristic okay you're approaching young girls in bikinis who are clearly underaged at like pools that's disgusting you have no oh my god and to think like that how many times that's happened to like even me as a teen like teenager swimming having a random guy coming up it's just y'all are sick yeah. <laughs> it's sick fucking sick i need alcohol yeah, right now yeah i know i might make a hot toddy <laughs> i just need a shot of vodka to just <clears throat> feel something other than pure disgust right now so sorry guys always always ending on that note but until next time (laughs) (laughs) until next time it's gonna be even worse i already got the next case planned it's so they never (laughs) whenever that will be never get better so If you want to find out or if you want to tune in and continue to listen, subscribe, like, give us five stars. It really helps the show out and follow all of our socials for the latest and greatest. If you want to see photos about the case or what kind of alcohol we like to drink, all that good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) At R-A-R-W podcast. And if you have a case that you want us to talk about, something that you just need to get off your chest, you know we're here. You can always send us an email. Red Rum and Red Wine Podcast at gmail.com. And stay fucking healthy, y'all. Go get that shot of vodka and then do 20 push ups immediately after to cancel it out. <laughs> I think I actually dreamt last night or two nights ago about like taking a shot of vodka. The last time I did weird. that, I threw up. So yeah, I don't, I don't do straight shots of vodka anymore. Yeah, I don't know why I would do that, even in a dream. Ugh. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>